<laughs> good to see you guys. Hope everybody's doing all right today. I uh, hope everybody had a good 4th of July. Everybody hold up your fingers. Let's just make sure we got all those still. Okay, that's good. That's good. Okay, how many of you love fireworks? Okay, how many of you prefer fireworks only to happen at designated locations? Those are cat and dog people, by the way. Uh, <laughs> I'll tell you what, it's so funny. Oh, come on, people. It's the greatest nation on the planet. We celebrate once a year. Give us a week to do this, okay? Give us a week to light our money on fire every night, late at night. Well, it's good to see you guys. Uh, We're in this staycation series this summer, a few different topics kind of standalone sermons, if you will, and a couple different speakers. And so uh, we've got a couple other guys who are going to be sharing over the next few weeks, including myself, um, and they've got some great messages. I'm excited for them to come in today. I want you to go to Philippians chapter 2. If you've got your Bibles, Bible apps, open those up. Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to be reading primarily out of the New Living Translation this morning, um, but I will look at a couple of verses in this passage and a a couple other translations as well. This book is all about joy. It's all about joy. And in fact, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord 17 times in this relatively short book. Uh, How many of you would appreciate a little more joy and happiness in your life? A little more joy and happiness in your life. I think all of us could probably use a little bit more of that. Uh, and, and it's important to have joy because it says in the Bible that the joy of the Lord is going to be your strength. And so if we're all going to do what God has asked us to do, if we're going to live the lives that God has asked us to live, it's important that we've got some strength to do it. And it says that where our strength comes from is the joy of the Lord. I will say, though, in culture, a lot of times people confuse joy and happiness. And and there's a big difference between the two. I do believe that joy can lead to happiness, but I find more times than not, if people are just dwelling on happiness, it almost never leads to joy. Because happiness is based on situation and circumstance. If you study the root of it, it happens. Happenstance is what it's based on. So the situations and circumstances, and I find that a lot of times our joy, we allow our joy to be dictated by the same thing. We allow our joy, the thing that is a supernatural gift from God, this thing that gives us strength, a lot of times we allow that to be dictated by situations and circumstances as well. Most people would equivocate joy with happiness. And if I were to go into a mall and ask people, hey, what do you think the key to joy is? They're really going to think I'm thinking happiness. Most of them, they're going to think I'm thinking happiness. And if I ask them, you know, what is the key? If you're going to live a life full of happiness and joy, what do you think are the elements, the key to this? Well, they would probably list off a pretty well-known list of things that you need to achieve to achieve happiness, right? Like you got to go get an education. Got to do that, right? Uh, And and then you get married. You have two and a half kids. uh, You get into your career. And then you you live and, and, and you get a 401k. And you get a retirement plan going, and then eventually you retire in the mountains or on the beach. Okay? How many mountain people in the room retire in the mountains? Okay? People of God up in the house. Okay? How, how many people retire on the beach? Okay, now here's the... And some of y'all aren't going to retire because you won't raise your hand in church. Uh, I mean, that's cool. Uh, you people want to retire on the beach. You're the same people that have salt life on the back of your vehicles. And you spend four days a, week, a year uh, down on the, on the beach. It's okay. That's all right. Living that salt life. It's biblical. You're the salt of the earth. Amen. Praise God. But all of us want to achieve this level of happiness and joy. But here's the thing. I know people that have all those things. They've gone through the whole process and they don't have an ounce of joy in their life. I mean, they have arrived, they are there, they are living in the house, on the beach, or in the mountains, or wherever they wanted to go, and guess what? No joy. And so there's obviously a lot more to it than just those things. Those things are great, those things are important, uh, but obviously, just getting those are not enough to give us the joy that God would have for us. I think there's a lot of things that can steal our joy. But the Word says, if you want to really focus in 
on what the Word says about how do you obtain joy in your life, you probably wouldn't guess what it primarily focuses on. Because what it primarily focuses on is harmony. The Bible over and over again, when it's talking about how do you live in joy, there's got to be harmony in your life. The things that typically have a tendency to rob us of our joy or that we allow to steal our joy. Because I find more times than not, as believers, what we're doing, we have full access to the joy of the Lord. It's a thing that you walk in. It's a faith that you walk in. But I do find that as believers, there are things that we allow to rob us of our joy. We surrender our joy to a few different things in our life. I think the first thing would be pain. Pain. Just hurt in your life. Now, specifically like physical pain, okay? Because how many of y'all know? You can be in the Christmas spirit and having all the joy in the world. You go in the attic and hit your head. Joy's gone. It's gone. This last week, we were getting ready to go and celebrate 4th of July and do a bunch of stuff. So we're loading up the Suburban and getting everything in there. And I rounded the corner and the back door was up on the back of the Suburban. I'm six foot three. I caught the edge of that door right square in my head. How many of y'all know that'll test your faith? An ability to not cuss in front of the kids, like instantly, it'll test you at the core of who you are. And so some of y'all may have seen, we posted a picture, because Cody likes taking pictures and posting pictures, and so she wanted to take a picture and post it of, of us in our, our 4th of July stuff, and so we took this picture and posted it. If you look at the look on my face, I am not a happy person, <laughs> because that was right after I nailed my head. And my wife will tell you, Hitting my head, I don't know what it is. I don't know. Please, men, if, if you can relate to this, can you give me an amen on this? But when you hit your head, it's just like more than anything else. Like you could get hit anywhere else on your body, but when you hit your head, it doesn't matter what you hit your head on. You want to destroy that object. Like just burn it to the ground. And, and, but when you hit it, it hurts you more, and so it doesn't really work out for you. But pain, a lot of times, can be something that can rob you of your joy pretty quick. How about pressure? Pressure. Psychologists would say that people feel more pressure right now in our current culture than the generation that was living during World War II. That we feel more pressure right now. And what is it? Well, it's jobs, it's money, and it's being overloaded with media. The overload of media in our life is causing this constant pressure and stress. And so because of that, for the very first time since automobiles were invented, the number one injury death in our nation is no longer automobile injury and death. It's now suicide because of the pressure and the stress that we allow into our lives, that we subject ourselves to, that steals us of our joy, that robs us of our joy. How about people? Don't look at anybody right now. Everybody look straight forward. Look straight forward. Because everybody's got that person. They've got people in your life. And people, people can be stealing some joy. We can allow people and give people permission in our lives to steal our joy, because everybody's got a sandpaper person in their life. That one person, man, every time you're around them, they just rub you the wrong way. God's trying to use them to shape you and your character, but man, when you get around these types of people, and it may not even be somebody you know, you're just driving. Minding your own business. Trying to stay in the fruit of the Spirit on 167. (laughs) And you're doing good. You got worship playing, the whole thing. And next thing you know, somebody come flying through there at 80 miles an hour, like a just bouncing off stuff the whole way down there. God, causing accidents. You're going to live there the rest of your life. People can steal joy. Look, you could have a lot of money. You could, have, you could be famous. You could, 
you could be successful according to the world's standards, but if there is a conflict in relationships, you're going to be unhappy. Conflict is the number one thing that I think the most of us struggle with when it comes to losing our joy. You could be doing great and have an argument with someone, and all of a sudden, your day is shot, or your, your week, or your month, year, because you, you had a blow-up argument with someone. Could be with a boss, could be with your spouse. But conflict, man, that's a big thing that can steal joy. And that, I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, the enemy loves using conflict early on in people's marriages. Not just early on, you know, because some of y'all have been married a long time, you know there's still some conflict. But, but the stats would show when you get married, you know, you're figuring out a lot of differences, and so it's difficult to navigate all that because, like, you know, when you're dating someone, it's like, man, opposites attract. But then you get married and you're living with them and opposites attack. And all of a sudden it's like you start realizing, like, there's these things about this person. It's just like, oh, I don't really care about it. And so there's arguments, man. When Cody and I, we, we didn't argue our whole first year or anything like that. And we had a, we had a pretty good first year of marriage. But when we would fight... When we would fight, oh my goodness, it's like the neighbors were canceling cable. They just sit out and listen to us fight. Like this, it was entertainment. It's like when we get done fighting, you better call a carpenter because there's going to be some sheetrock that needed to be prepared in our house. Because when we fought, man, we fought like crazy. But what did it all center around? It centered around both of us wanting to be right. And she just didn't know how wrong she was most of the time. You know, it's just like... Baby, I'm trying to help you. You got some stuff you need to learn, you know. How many of y'all know? (laughs) That ain't true. (laughs) But it usually centered around conflict and pride. Proverbs 13.10 says, pride always leads to arguments. Always. Not like some of the time. Always. At one point or another, if you're prideful, an argument is coming. It is coming into your life. You are going to encounter a fight. And it's like pride and conflict, and you can write this down, pride and conflict, they hold hands. Pride and conflict, they, it's like they, they interdigitize. They're in unity with each other. And it causes some major issues. The opposite is also true. Humility and harmony hold hands. Humility and harmony hold hands. And so, if joy is derived from harmony, then the key to having joy is humility. This is the process. And today I want to look at this passage of Scripture in Philippians chapter 2, and I want to give you a guarantee. I will guarantee you, if you will apply what I'm teaching you and what the word of God teaches us, if you will apply this in your life, you will walk in joy no matter what your circumstance. I promise you, if you will do what the word of God is teaching us in this passage, you will walk in harmony. Not that the other person is always gonna be harmonious towards you, But you can walk in harmony. You can walk in joy. So let's go to this. In Philippians chapter 2, I'm going to read a lot of scripture today. I might bounce around a little bit. Verse 1 says, Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from his love? Any fellowship together in the Spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Okay, so basically what this first verse is saying is this. Has Jesus done anything for you? Like, do you, do you see, can you recognize what Jesus has done for you? And maybe if you don't see it all the time and see all of it, can you just recognize, man, Jesus has been good to you. If you can see these things, then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly. Everybody say wholeheartedly. With each other, loving one another. Everybody say loving. And working together. Everybody say working. With one mind and purpose. Everybody say purpose. 
Don't be selfish. Don't, be, don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Okay, we're going to unpack this a little bit. Verse 1, if God's ever done anything for you, then verse 2 says, Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. Okay, so here is the whole vision. This is the vision of this passage. So having joy. To having joy, it starts with relational harmony. And where does this relational harmony happen? In, in four primary arenas in our lives. First of all, it says agreeing wholeheartedly, okay? That's mental harmony. Mental harmony. Man, imagine if you have that in your marriage. Like, just mental harmony. It's like, man, we just, all, we just think the same on everything. <laughs> it's just amazing. <laughs> okay, we know that that's usually not the case. If you had that with your kids, oh my gosh, my kids had mental harmony. Oh man, family trips might be able to be vacations if my kids had mental harmony, okay? But right now, they're still family trips, not vacations, okay? Loving one another, that's emotional harmony, emotional harmony. Now, this is a giving and receiving. Homes dry up when there's one person giving love and another person not returning it. Okay? When, you're, when, you're, when you're giving love to your kids and all you're receiving in return is disrespect, that relationship begins to dry up. So it's saying if you can have harmony relationally, if you can have harmony in your emotional love towards other people, then this is one of the key elements to having joy. And then it says working together. That's spiritual harmony because what we're working towards is God's kingdom. But not everybody sees it that way. And that's the reason why there's not harmony. The reason why there's not harmony is because not everybody is agreeing towards one thing that they're working towards, including the church, including Christians worldwide. We're not always understanding, like, look, we, we have the same job. We have one purpose, and that's to build the kingdom of God. But if we could boil it down just to who we are as a body of believers, man, if every day we are waking up and in all of the different facets that it happens and all the different jobs and, and, and different careers that we have, but if all of us woke up and we had this mental harmony, this emotional harmony, this spiritual harmony that we understand, we are all working towards glorifying our heavenly father. Man, would it bring some joy. Man. Would it bring some peace? And then it says, one mind and purpose. That's directional harmony. That's directional harmony. This is just where we're headed in the same direction. We're doing the will of God together. And whenever you have these four things, you're going to have joy. You're going to have joy. But if you look at these, I know if I look at these, I'm like, okay, that is impossible. Like, there, it just doesn't seem, and the reason why it feels impossible is because most of these things are very unnatural. How many are thankful that we don't serve a natural God? Like, we serve a supernatural God. And, and I believe that, that God shows us, I mean, imagine if we had this in Washington, D.C. Oh, Lord. Like, I'd pass out. Like, I, I don't know if I could handle myself. The rest of this passage Paul is showing that humility is the pathway to all this harmony. I guarantee this will work if you'll use these things. Number one, never again let pride guide. Never again let pride guide. Philippians 2.3, don't do anything from selfish ambition or vain conceit. Instead, be humble and give more honor to others than to yourself. A while back, uh, I took the boys, my two boys, canoeing on the Buffalo. And when we got there and got the canoes situated and everything, I went to my older son, Corbin. And I said, Corbin, I want you to get at the front of the canoe. He's like, you want me at the front? I'm like, yeah, buddy. 
you get to be at the front of the canoe, the very front, all right? You're going to be leading the way, man. You got this. And so he gets in there, rips off his shirt. He's flexing. Not a lot happened, but, but he, he's flexing. And he's up there paddling as hard as he can. He's just like basically like everybody around like, I'm at the front. Dad told me I need to be at the front of the canoe. Get you some. But how, how many of y'all know that's not the most important part in the canoe, Because all the work happens at the back of the canoe. The back of the canoe is decides where the front of the canoe goes. That's what steers it. It doesn't matter how hard they're paddling at the front of the canoe. If the back of the canoe decides that's not the direction we're going, the back of the canoe will decide where you go. Dads, we need to get this. Because I find that so many of us think that the way that we lead strong is we put ourselves out front. We bow up our chest. We say, I'm the dad around here. I'm important. I'm at the front of the canoe. But the model that Jesus said is, no, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. And we need to position ourselves in a place of service. If you really want to guide your family where it's going to go, you need to get in the right spot in the canoe. Because too many of us in our lives, you want to influence anyone. So I'm not just speaking to dads here. I'm speaking to every person in this room. If you want to lead, you want to guide, and you want to have influence, stop insisting on being up front and come from behind and serve. Because God elevates those that serve. God promotes those that serve. And the thing is, it's this amazing, like, let's see who can outserve and outgive. And you can never outgive God, but he will. He will bless you. And what will happen is he'll promote you, and then you'll have this heart of service and just to say, no, I don't want the position. I'm just going to keep serving. He's like, okay, well, I'm going to promote you again. I'm going to give you even more money and more influence. And then you're going to be like, but I don't need all this. And I'm going to use this and I'm going to serve and I'm going to build your kingdom. And I'm going to stay at the back of the canoe. And all of a sudden your kids are going to respect you and your kids are going to love you. And your kids are going to listen to what you have to say. Why? Because you're acting like Jesus. Because you position yourself in a place of service. You've put yourself at the back of the canoe. I heard this story. How many of y'all love Chick-fil-A? Except on Sundays, right? On Sundays, like we're all like, oh, they're so godly and spiritual, except on Sunday. Then we cussing them. Like we don't like them on Sunday. How many of y'all ever pulled into a Chick-fil-A on Sunday? So, so excited. Oh man, it's like the greatest feeling. It's like, got kids in the car. Like, man, church is good today. We're gonna go get some Jesus chicken. And then you pull in there. And it's like, why is it so dark? <sighs> hmm. And it's especially tough for us because we got to drive down to North Little Rock to get close to the anointing of the Jesus chicken. <laughs> Which means we got to drive through hell to get there, right? That's right. But then the enemy, he's so tricky. Because you're more demon-possessed on the way back than you were on the way down. But I heard this story. That's just beside the point. Everybody just knows we're frustrated on Sunday when we can't get Chick-fil-A. But there's a story of a pastor who he's connected relationally with with New Life Church. And he was doing some inner-city work, doing some missions work, inner-city missions work, with the CEO of Chick-fil-A. And his name is Dan Cathy. And uh, and so they they had gotten done on, on a... A really long hot day, but they were kind of in this area where there just wasn't a lot around. And so they started looking around to find out, like, we need to get some lunch, we're going to eat, and then we, we got to get back to work. And so they're looking around, but the only thing that they could find was a Taco Bell, and that's never the will of God. But, but, <laughs> but that was the only thing around. So they go into the Taco Bell, and they're hot, and they're sweaty, and so they, they go to the bathroom just to, like, wash up, to clean up a little bit. So they go in there and they start washing their hands. Next thing you know, Dan Cathy, the CEO of Chick-fil-A, okay, his dad started Chick-fil-A. He starts grabbing paper towels. He starts wiping down the countertops. The next thing you know, he's grabbing some more and he goes into the stalls and he starts wiping down toilets. And he's wiping, he's wiping down urinals. And the other guys around are like, what are you doing? He said, my dad has always taught me to leave a place better than I found it. 
And so here is the number one competitor of Taco Bell, the CEO of their number one competitor, cleaning their bathrooms. You know what that is? Crazy. Like, it's crazy. No, that's a servant's heart. That is a servant's heart. You want to know why Chick-fil-A is doing so well? It's not a mystery to me. And it's not just because they say, my pleasure. Although, I think that helps. I do think that helps. That makes me want to order some more. I think it's because the heart of their leadership is to serve. The heart of their leadership is to come underneath, even to their competition. There's something in that for you. It's easy to serve people that aren't competing against you. It's a lot more difficult when you know that somebody would love to see you fail. It's another thing when you know that somebody would love to see you just be miserable and you still serve them. You still lift them up. Never again let pride guide. Never again let pride guide. Paul is saying the greatest impact in life will come from the back row, out of the spotlight. Just serving, loving, sacrificing. This is where you're going to find joy. And thinking about my life, the riskiest and dumbest things that I've ever done have always been attached to pride. You know? I mean, even as a young man, I I did stuff as a young man that was just absolutely stupid. I would voluntarily climb on the back of a full-grown bull. This could be fun. I I would jump off of 80-foot cliffs. I I would, you know, but it was always centered around, I got this. It was centered around pride. Whenever I've made a bad financial decision in my life, it was typically centered around pride. It's typically me thinking, even if I, if I was really being honest with myself, it's because I, I want to look good. If I have this, if I have this nice thing, if I have this, then people will notice me. It's been centered around pride. Every conflict that you go through has an element of pride mixed into it, I promise you. Every conflict that you go through. Here's a little illustration. What's the middle letter of the word pride? What's the middle letter of the word crime? What's the middle letter of the word sin? Typically in your life, your life is going to go bad when you have a lot of I in the middle. When you think that the world is revolving around you and you want to be at the center of attention, the center of what's going on, when it's I, 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 your, your life's not going to be going well. So in Galatians, actually, Paul gives these 17 horrible effects of living a selfish lifestyle, living in selfish ambition. One of the things he says is that pride is a weapon of self-destruction. It's a weapon of self-destruction. So in this verse that we just read, I want you to circle the word anything. Anything. Don't do anything from selfish ambition or vacancy. So circle that. That is tough. Anything. Don't do anything. Not one decision, not one reaction out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. What is selfish ambition? It's saying it's all about me. This is all about me. And vain conceit means I'm always right. I'm always right. So when you have those two attitudes, it's all about me and I'm always right, you're prideful. You're prideful. Selfish ambition says it's all about my needs. And I feel like this is an epidemic right now where I hear this even in counseling sessions. My needs just aren't being met. My needs just aren't being met. And it's so hard because you can't just shut that down because then they shut off to you. But the truth is this, it's anti-biblical for you to make sure that your needs are being met. That is not what Jesus showed us is the key to fulfillment. The key to fulfillment is not always, man, I... I need to make sure my needs are being met. And look, I know there can be some real hurt that is surrounded around that in relationships. I get all that. But I would say most of the time, you need to get a straw and suck it up because it is not about your needs. 
And I promise you, if you will seek first the kingdom of God and all of his righteousness, then all of your needs will be added unto you and you won't have to worry about it. But you've got to make sure that everything isn't surrounding you. It's not about you. James 3.16, whenever there is jealousy or selfish ambition, you'll find confusion and every, everybody say every, every other kind of evil. Wow, that is a lot. Wherever you find those things, you'll find confusion and every other kind of evil. I want to I look at this verse that we were just going through in verse 3, Philippians 2, verse 3, and a couple other translation, translations, Living Bible. Don't live to make a good impression on others. Woo! Don't make the focus of your life, everything that's fueling you, to make a good impression on others. The English Standard Version, don't do anything from a cheap desire to boast. Look, if we took this verse to heart, we could make social media fun again in one day. It could change the whole thing. Like, if people really were not trying to bring attention to themselves, but if we were putting attention on God and his goodness and who he is and on the needs of others, man, what a force of good. Walk in humility. Walk in humility. Okay, humility is not putting yourself down. Okay? Being self-degrading is not humility. That's false humility. And the Bible warns against that too. So so don't confuse that. C.S. Lewis said this, humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. So it's not putting yourself down. It's just thinking of others more than yourself. Number two, pay attention to others. Pay attention to others. Our world has a major attention deficit disorder right now like the whole planet. We pay so much attention to the virtual world that we are missing the relational world because we think that the virtual world is the same thing and it's not. Uh, You're not gonna find true relational fulfillment in the virtual world. It doesn't happen. Since 2001, the number of pedestrians killed by cars is up 16 times because people are consumed with media, and they're not paying attention. So they're hitting people with their cars. So in verse four, it says, don't be interested only in your own life, but be interested in what others care about too. What others care about too. And I miss this on so many different levels. I've definitely missed this in a lot of different places in my marriage with Cody. Um, But I think one of the areas I probably miss this, I don't probably miss it quite as much, but early on, I definitely miss this a lot is what I considered funny versus what she felt was funny, okay? She just didn't have a good sense of humor early on in our relationship. It took a while for her to, to catch up on this thing. And so, so there was a time when, you know, something, there was an opportunity for something so funny. And uh, so we were in a friend's car and, um, and we had just picked up Cody and uh, I was sitting in the back seat, and it was a, a forerunner set at a back. And, and what Cody didn't know was that this friend had just bought a nine-foot-long Burmese python. And, and it was sitting back behind the back seat in, in a box in a, in a drawstring bag. And Cody fell asleep because she falls asleep really easily in cars. Um, pretty quickly, she fell asleep. And I was like, this is going to be so funny. And... <laughs> So I reached back and I got the snake and I just gently placed it around her shoulders as she was sleeping. And then I woke her up <laughs> with, oh my gosh, Cody. <laughs> so she woke up to that with a snake around her neck. She didn't think it was funny. <laughs> like you would think, like I was thinking, she went, ah, 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 snake. Ah. 
No. No. As soon as I got the snake off of her, I've never been hit that many times in such a short amount of time. So I asked Cody, because I couldn't remember. I was like, Cody, you remember when that, were we dating or when we were, were we married? And she said, we were over. That's what we were. <laughs> that was the status. Like, he's like, there's no way I'm going to spend the rest of my life with this guy. It took some repairing people. Like, it took me a while because I still was like, I don't get it. Why don't you think that's funny? That's hilarious. But humor at the expense of other people is not really that funny. And, uh, and so I clearly wasn't looking to her needs. I wasn't looking to what she would prefer in that situation. <laughs> it's natural to look after number one. It's sinful nature. It's the flesh. Like, we want to look after ourselves. You know, so in conversations, I'd encourage you, be locked in. Don't be like the guy that I was having a conversation with this last week that just talked about himself the whole time. And then when I tried to shift the conversation, for like 45 seconds, he got bored. Started looking at his watch. Before I know, he said, hey, man, I got to go. I'm sorry. I'm like, oh, okay. See you later. Just clearly wanted to just talk about what he what he had going on, what he was good at, what he was smart about. The one-upper type people, you know, they always got one thing that's going on that's better than anything that you've got going on that you're trying to celebrate. Don't be those people. But it's typically our agenda that we like most. I could prove it. Okay, so if I, if I got up here and I took my phone and I took one of those panoramic shots of the crowd, right? And then I took that and I printed out a bunch of copies and I handed them out to all of y'all. What are you going to do? What's the first thing you're going to do? You're going to look for you. And if you're having a bad hair day, or you don't like the smile, because you're not doing your, your really cool, sexy, soft smile in the picture, you know, if you don't like something about yourself in the picture, that's a horrible picture. Horrible picture. They, should, they need to gather all these up and destroy them, you know? Doesn't matter what everybody else looks like. If you don't look good in that picture, it's a terrible picture. Pastor James is a horrible photographer. <laughs> oh, he should stick to his day job because we're interested in our own agenda. Number three, follow the example of Christ Jesus. Philippians 2.5, your attitude should be the same. Everybody say same as that of Christ Jesus. Man, ooh. That's a pretty high standard. So it's kind of cool because uh, in this passage, it actually goes old school on us, like first church old school. And uh, if, you have, if you have your Bible, I may not show this way on your, on your phone, but in your Bible, the structure of the sentencing changes, okay? So it goes more from a paragraph form to what you would see in like Psalms. And the reason why that is, is because verses six through 11, are an ancient Greek hymn. So they would sing this. There's no indication whether or not Paul wrote this or he just heard this somewhere, but he decided that this is what he was going to write. He was going to write this song because people were singing this song. I think that's so powerful because they were singing this, reminding themselves what Jesus did and why they should remain humble. So we're all going to sing it together. Now, I'm joking. We're not going to do that. But I do want to read back through it because, man, and I'm sure it sounded great, you know, in the original language, in the original Greek, but they would sing this song, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave himself up his divine power or divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And we appeared in human form. He humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the highest place of honor 
and gave him the name that is above every other name. Let's read this next part all together. Ready? One, two, three. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If you're thankful for Jesus, give him a hand in this place. couple attitudes of Jesus. Stop demanding what you think you deserve. Stop demanding what you think you deserve. Jesus never demanded what he deserved. He never demanded what he deserved. Jesus could have called down 10,000 angels when he was hanging on that cross and obliterated everything in that area. And he would have given those people what they deserved and what he deserved was complete and total worship. He deserved, he's the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. But Jesus never demanded his rights. When you demand your rights, you will delay what you really need and want. When you demand your rights, you will put on hold the grace and blessing of God. When you demand your rights, you may get what you think you want you will not though get it from their heart and so it'll never actually fulfill you. You may get it. If you demand it, you can leverage your authority, leverage your position, leverage what is fair, leverage what is just to get what you think you deserve. But at the end of the day, if the people you're getting it from, if they're not giving it from their heart, it won't mean anything. Jesus says that there's a better way. There's a better way to get what you really want. It's humility. It's humility. Though he was God, he did not demand and cling to his rights as God. He emptied himself of all that he had. And another attitude, look for ways to serve. Look for ways to serve. So uh, a while back, I'm not saying it's like the only time this happened, but it's the only time it happened like this. But a while back, I, I, it was the end of a long day. I was just kind of emotionally, mentally, physically. I'd used all my words for the day. Um, I was just done. And, and we'd had dinner. And, and there are times when I, I have this attitude like, I provide for this family. I worked hard all day. You know, I'm glad you fixed me dinner. Now I just want to go and sit and do whatever I want to do. And so I got done eating and, and I felt like this voice, God saying, why don't you go do the dishes? And at first I was like, get thee behind me, Satan. Like, God, <laughs> devil be so busy sometimes. But I got up and, and I went to go do the dishes, but the dishwasher was full so, of clean dishes. So I unloaded the dishwasher and put all the dishes where they actually go. And, and then I took all the dirty dishes and cleaned them off and put them in the dishwasher. And I was like, okay, God, done. And he said, why don't you sweep too? I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> so, you know, I didn't sweep. I swept, I swept like a woman. Because when men sweep, this is how it goes. Like oh, a piece of trash there and a piece of mud right there. Swept, done, out of here. <laughs> but a woman move all the furniture out of the room and aside, you know, there's a clear space. Don't try to navigate around all the different legs of the chairs and everything. So you move that stuff. You, so I swept up and got all that done. And then I was done with that. And then I remember like, there's this thing that wives and women have where the kitchen's not clean until the countertops are wiped down. Okay. I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to hear from you women. Okay. So I was like, I'm going to wipe down the counters then too. So we, it's got a lot of counter space, people. And so I'm wiping down the counters. I get all that done. And about that time, Cody comes walking out from helping the kids get put down. And she sees me. And I want to let you know, joy hit that house that night. <laughs> I mean, the joy of the Lord hit our home. Typically what I've seen 
is that marriages lose their passion because someone quit serving. Marriages typically start drying up. They lose their passion because somebody made the decision that it's all about them. They made the decision that they deserve something. They made the decision that someone should be serving them instead of them serving other people. Verse eight says, while living as a man, Jesus humbled himself in every, even more by being fully obedient to God. And even when that meant death on a cross, his death on a cross. So there's two perspectives to the humility of Jesus. Really, there's heaven's perspective. There's our perspective and my perspective. Most of our perspective be men. Humility was that he gave up heaven. Like he gave up like the throne room of God. He gave up heaven and, and, and all the majesty of that. And he gave up just being worshiped 24 hours a day. And he gave up all that to be born into a barn next to animals. Man, that is humility. And it's true like that is, but this is heaven's perspective. Heaven's perspective is this, that when Jesus took on our sin, he committed cosmic treason. In other words, he, he became, when he became sin, he became the very thing that God abhorred the most. When he became my sin, he became the most repugnant thing that God had ever had before him. That's real humility. And you have to understand that what God has called us to as believers is sometimes, sometimes we're going to have people that have a lot of sin around us. And the attitude of Christ is not to judge. The attitude of Christ is, the attitude of Christ is, I'm going to become your sin. I'm going to take on that burden. That is the humility of Christ. Man, when I think about my sin, and I think about Jesus willingly becoming my sin, becoming my sin so that I didn't have to be separated eternally from God. And then his dad rejecting him, rejecting him. Man, that is humility. And I think relationship with God, if you don't have an understanding of that, it's gonna be difficult to apply the rest of this. So let's go to that. Let's close our eyes, bow our heads. If you're here today, you've, man, you, you've never had that revelation before. And, and it is, it is a revelation. This is not just a knowledge thing. This isn't just hearing me say, you know, Jesus is the way to the Father. This isn't just you hearing like, oh, I, okay, so I, I just need to believe in Jesus and then, and then I can be saved. This is more than just, that it is a is a personal revelation that Jesus became your sin. He became your sin. He was rejected by his heavenly father for you. For you. And if you're in this place and you've never accepted that revelation, you've never surrendered your life to the fact that without that, without Jesus doing that, you are separated from your heavenly father. You're separated from God. Without you accepting the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross and the repenting of your sin, without that, you were separated from God. If you're here today and you're ready to accept the price and the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross for you, nobody looking around, I'm not gonna embarrass you. And I don't care if you've been in church your whole life, or this is your first time, Jesus loves you. Jesus died for you. He wants to have a relationship with you. And if you're ready to accept that relationship for the first time or to rededicate your life to him today, I want you to put your hand up all across this room. Thank you. Lift it high. Got it. Yes. Thank you, guys. Thanks. Anybody else? Got you there at the back. Thank you, guys. Yes. Anybody else? I need a relationship with Jesus. I'm ready to accept his love. Got it, bro. Thank you. Anybody else? I need a relationship with God. Try to, tired of trying to do this on my own. Okay, Father God, I thank you for every person that just raised their hand. And if you raise your hand right there in your chair, the word says, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, then you can be saved. 
And I encourage you to pray this prayer, a great way to confess that you're a believer is water baptism. And you can have that opportunity after our second service today, you can be water baptized if you choose. But right there in your chair, just say, God, here's my life. And I know that I'm a sinner and I know that I can't save myself. My sin, it's too, it's too big to even count, God. I can't even wrap my mind around it. And I can't, even, I can't wrap my mind around how you could love me and still forgive me. But in faith, I believe that you came, Jesus, and you became my sin. You became my sin for me on the cross. And you died, but you didn't stay dead. You defeated my sin. You defeated death in the grave and you rose again. And I thank you, Jesus, for that. And I thank you that in you, I can have a new life. And so today, I surrender to you as my Savior. I surrender to you as my Lord. And I stop and I turn away from living the way I want to live. And I want to live according to your plan and to your purpose, according to what your, your word says by the leading of your Holy Spirit. Thank you for that. God, I pray that all of us, Lord, would walk in a place of harmony in you. If you're here today and you're struggling in relationship, you're struggling with conflict, and maybe you've recognized that, it, that there's some pride that's involved in that and you're ready to just surrender and confess that to God and, and, and receive his grace and let your, his grace come into that situation as you humble yourself. If that's you, I want to pray for you too. If that's you, just put your hand up right now. You've got some relational conflict. You know there's some pride around it. Right now, God, every one of these hands, this is us just confessing. We're confessing our pride, God. We're confessing that we've tried to manage something. We've tried to demand our, our rights, demand what we deserve. And right now, God, we don't get it all, but we, we, we choose right now to take on the character and attitude of Jesus Christ. God, help us to learn to serve. Help us to learn to sacrifice, God, that if we'll put others first and that supernatural peace and joy that the world can't explain is gonna hit our life, it's gonna hit our hearts, it's gonna hit our thoughts, and it's gonna lead and direct us, God. I pray for every person, God, and I thank you for your grace that's on them right now, Lord. And I pray that you give them the grace to take it a step further, Lord. If their pride has caused a relational break with someone, I pray, God, that they would take that, that grace that you've just given them and repent, that they would apologize. God, they would ask for forgiveness wherever it needs to happen, God, that it would happen. We thank you for it. We thank you for what you did today. In Jesus' name, amen. Everybody said amen, amen. Let's give God a hand this morning. We had a bunch of people getting saved. Come on, let's give Jesus some praise in this place.